Uh, you can open up your Bible if you have one uh, to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at a few verses from uh, part of the Christmas story here in just a few minutes. But I wanted to say as usual, thank you to you, especially if you're part of our church, uh, for your ongoing generosity uh, as a church family, as individuals, as couples, as families. Uh, thank you for your generosity that many of you have shown, uh, even with the giving trees that we've had at the back of the auditorium uh, this month. It was cool to get to deliver some of those different places, and we had to even clear out some things because they were overflowing the tables and things like that. It's been wonderful to see your generosity. And thanks for your generosity to our general fund as well. I saw a really encouraging thing even this morning that I wanted to, to share with you to give you a little glimpse into how even the funds that you are giving into our church are making an impact around the world. Uh, so if some of you know Chris and Evie Jones, who we've commissioned from our church to go to Papua New Guinea to the Pay Tribe. And within the last year or two, they've actually started to see converts made uh, amongst this uh, tribe that had never heard of God, uh, or Jesus especially. Uh, but now there's some who are believing, who've been baptized even into this church. One of the Jones's teammates that works with them in the jungle, her name's Candace Swift, and I saw a post that she made this morning uh, that I think I have a picture of it even that we could show. Uh, and I wanted to read what she wrote. It's wonderful that they can make social media posts from the jungle. I don't know exactly how that works. Uh, satellites and whatnot, but uh, a couple Accompanying this picture and some others, Candace, uh, the Joneses' teammate, wrote this, but it, it can be a reminder to us of what the Joneses and her and their teammates are doing by the help of God. Uh, she wrote this. She wrote, Merry Christmas from Pei. The church gathered this morning to remember Jesus' birth. Then this afternoon, a few ladies came down to cook a huge amount of food. We feasted and thanked God for sending his promised son. And during the meal, a non-believing family came on the porch and were kind of hinting that they were hungry. So I asked the believers what they thought we should do, and they said, we should give them some food so we can be a picture of Jesus to them. Then maybe they'll want to hear his true talk. That's what they call the gospel. And she just said, I was beaming with pride and agreed. And then they, I presume that they invited them in and had uh, food with them on a day they now know as a day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But that those uh, friends in the tribe knew nothing of this Christ that certainly aren't believing upon him yet. But it was a wonderful picture to me, not just that Christmases don't have to be negative 20 degrees. <laughs> they have jungle around them and heat and things like that. But what's way more important is that by the work of Chris and Evie and Candace and their teammates, God is actually doing a work amongst the Pay Tribe uh, halfway around the world. And there's people who are coming to faith. And then they're doing now what we try to do. They're trying in their community to tell people about Christ and represent him. And it's just a wonderful picture of the good news of Jesus that began 2,000 years ago and even before that, uh, continuing to spread to the nations and to the generations. So I just wanted to share that. That was an encouragement to my heart to see and hope that it can be an encouragement to you as you continue to give of what God has given to you uh, to the mission of our church here in the community and around the world. Well, there's a question that some of you have had to think about even as you get ready for gatherings today where you may exchange some gifts. There's, a, there's an age-old question. I don't know where it originated, but I'm guessing you've heard it. It's the question that we ask where we say, what do you give to the person who has it all? 
What do you give to them? Uh, if you have maybe a wealthy sister who has everything she wants, could purchase anything she needs very easily. What if you have a spoiled nephew who has any gadgets and clothes and technologies and things that, that he could ever want or set his heart on? What do you give him that he's not just going to set aside right after he opens it, that he already has one or that he could easily get himself? Uh, and I was, I was thinking of this, and note, I am not fully endorsing this movie I'm about to share a reference from, so take that with a caveat, but uh, there's a movie called Christmas Vacation uh, with a character named Clark Griswold in it. Uh, I know some of you are closet fans of this movie. Uh, but there's a movie called Christmas Vacation where there's this character played by Chevy Chase named Clark Griswold. And the whole movie is, is set up with, uh, based on his angst that he has not yet received his normal Christmas bonus check that typically he receives. And he's getting more desperate as it gets closer to Christmas to get it. And so there's this one scene where he goes to the office of his boss, this gigantic office. His boss is named Mr. Shirley. And he walks in, uh, and his boss is, is clearly distracted, doesn't really want him to be there. But he kind of pops his head in, and he's carrying a present. He says this. He says, my wife and I came up with a little something special. It's a gift. And the boss clearly doesn't want him to be there. And he says to him, he says, put it over there with the other's grease ball. And he calls him the wrong name. Uh, but Clark takes his present and kind of sulking, takes it over. And then he turns and looks, and there's this whole, like, credenza, like a, a table, where there's probably 15 to 20 of the same exact present uh, that he just brought in. And he just kind of sheepishly sets it on the table. And you can, like, see the wheels turning in his mind that this gift is not going to move the needle at all. Like, this guy clearly either already has one of these things or doesn't want them, and I'm just adding to, adding to the noise. It's like uh, just putting a drop of water in the ocean. Like I'm just, uh, it's going to make no difference to him. And as we think of somebody wealthy like that or a sibling who maybe has all they want or a nephew, and we struggle to think about what could I give him, what could I give her that's going to make a difference, we should then, I think, just challenge ourselves to think, what could I give Jesus? Like, if these people have everything, and I struggle to think, what could I give to, to them? I think the question should roll in our mind, what could I give to Christ? That he's not just going to set on the credenza of heaven, already having the worship of millions of people, already having all, anything that he could ever desire or set his heart on. Uh, but uh, thankfully, in the birth story of Jesus and the narrative surrounding it, I think we have an answer to that question. What can we give the one who has it all? What can we give to Christ as a gift? And we see it in the story of the wise men. And you're, I don't know that it's the answer to the question is going to have this answer you think as far as what gifts we bring to this person, this Savior who has it all. But we're going to read a few of these verses. I'm mostly going to read Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, but then I'm going to drop down in a few minutes and read a verse later in the chapter. Uh, but I think we're probably mostly familiar with this story. I wanted to make sure we know the context before I read these verses. So Matthew's writing the story of Jesus' life uh, from conception to death to resurrection. Uh, he, he's telling this story. And he began in chapter 1. And if you even just look the verses right before what I'm about to read, 
Uh, Matthew had said some phenomenal, amazing things about this baby who was to be born. Uh, he, he had, if you want to think of it this way and thinking of gifts, he had kind of told us why it would be hard to shop for Jesus. Uh, he gave us some hints, right? If you look back in chapter one, he told us that Jesus' conception was miraculous. Uh, he said in verse 18 and in verse 20 that this baby was from the Holy Spirit, that, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know from chapter one that this mission of this baby coming into the world was eternally significant, that he wasn't just sent into the world to, to kind of just fumble around, but he was sent, verse 21 of chapter one says, that he was sent to save his people from their sins. That was the mission he was sent into the world with. And we see in chapter one, this would have made bringing a gift to him the hardest thing to contemplate. We see that he tells us something about his identity, that his identity was divine. He gave him the name and said that they would give him the name Emmanuel, verse 23, which means God with us. That this baby wasn't just a baby, that there was something divine about him, not just something unique, but something divine about him. And then what I'm about to read, Matthew, he doesn't tell us about the shepherds. He doesn't tell us about uh, the, the fields outside Bethlehem the night Jesus was born. But he jumps in chapter 2 to talk about the visit of these wise men who come from the east. And so I want to read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 2 and show you a few things about this text and what these men were going to bring to Jesus. So if you have your eyes on Matthew 2 verse 1 and 2, I think we may have this on the screen today as well. But Matthew records this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to point out a couple things. We're going to read verse 11 here in a few minutes where they actually bring their treasures and open them to him. But verses 1 and 2 are where we're going to spend the most bit of our time this morning. So what do we know about these men who came uh, to visit Jesus and to bring him gifts? A few things we can know from these verses. First, we can know that there were multiple men. We don't know exactly how many. Uh, often our nativity says there's three, but we don't know that. That's just based on there's three gifts mentioned down in verse 11. But we know there was multiple. There was at least more than one. It's a plural noun that gets used there, the wise men, okay? But the second thing we know, by, even by the title that we typically use to refer to them as they were wise men, right? Or yours may say that the magi came from the east. Now, what that means, uh, there's a lot we don't know what that means, but a few things we do know or can infer about what these men were or who they were. Uh, is that they were stargazers, kind of ancient stargazers. They would combine astronomy and astrology. So uh, they're, they're not believers. They're, they're not people who loved the Lord, knew the Lord's promises yet fully. Uh, but they would look up at the night sky and they would see the movement of stars and they would observe these things and take note of these things. And when there would be something different then or something that would shift they would try to connect what they were seeing in the night sky with the events of the earth, the events of people's lives, the events of nations and kingdoms. And they were trying to connect what they saw in the heavens with what they anticipated happening on the earth. So they were wise men. The third thing we can know from them is that they were foreign men. 
right? They weren't from Israel. They came from the east, Matthew records for us. We don't know exactly what that means. We just know that they were east of Judea, east of the land of Israel. Uh, They were coming west. Maybe they were from Persia. Uh, That would be a good guess, which is where some of God's people went into exile hundreds of years before. Uh, But we know they came from the east, and we don't know where exactly. But one thing we can know based on the fact that they were coming from the east, is that they were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish men, right? They were foreign. They were foreign even to the covenant of God and the promises of God. And then the last thing I would say that we can know about these men who were coming bringing gifts is that they were wealthy men, Uh, that they were traveling over a long spread with gold, among other things, right? It's not just a normal thing in the ancient world to just have gold uh, in your possession, let alone on your person, making trips across the land. And so these, there was multiple men, wise men, foreign men, and wealthy men. That's who are these gift givers who are about to bring something to Jesus. But what prompted their visit, we can know from these verses that I read as well, what prompted them to come and make this journey is that they saw a star rise in the sky. They say, they say that they saw a star rise in the east. I am not even going to try to speculate what they saw. There's lots of people who've written up articles and things about how they think the certain stars aligned and planets and things like that. I don't know, uh, but I know they saw something in the sky that they refer to as a star rising in the east, something that was unique, something that was very unusual to them, because I don't think they were making journeys like this all the time. It was something very, very unique that they saw in the night sky of a star rising. But did you note that they didn't just say, we saw a star when it rose? They called it his star. Did you notice that? It says, we saw his star when it inferred it, but when they saw this star, this unique, if it was an angelic visit, or maybe they'd heard something from Daniel when he'd been in exile hundreds, they knew this star that we just saw means that there is a king, a very unique king being born to the Jewish people. I don't know how they knew that. We will find out in glory perhaps, but I will say this. This was a birth announcement that puts ours to shame, okay? I've, I've received some wonderful birth announcements over the years. Even the last few weeks, I've received some birth announcements from friends that just made my heart sore. But it's like a text message or a phone call or something like this. This birth announcement is God moving stars or planets to say that this baby is born. That does not happen. God doesn't do that for as special as our babies are. He puts this star up in the sky for these men to see, if not others to see. And so they pack up their things, they gather their gifts, they probably had an entourage of people that go with them, like an ancient Brinks truck of sorts to go with them. Uh, And they go, I would say one thing we can know about these men is they weren't the omniscient men, all right, because they go to Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem. Uh, they, They don't go where he's actually born. They go to where they think he would be born in Jerusalem. And I think they probably expected there to be a buzz in the town. I mean, if if God had moved stars in the sky to say that this baby was born, I'm guessing they assumed, man, there's going to be hubbub around Jerusalem. They're going to know who this king is. So they come into town asking where this king is. And I want to show you what they brought him. What did they bring to this king that God's moving stars in the sky to say he's been born? What would they bring to him? This, this child who is impossible to shop for. What do, you, what do you bring to him? And my guess would be, if I asked even some of the youngest kids in the room, what did the wise men come to bring to Jesus? 
Don't answer this out loud. I'm guessing we're thinking, oh, easy. Like I've known that since I was three or whatever. That we, our answer would be, what we're going to read in verse 11, our answer would typically be, oh, they brought him gold and frankincense and myrrh, right? And you would be correct. Those are gifts that they came to bring to Jesus. But I want you to pay attention to what I already read. I'm going to show it to you. In verse 2, what they bring him first. Even but what they came most fundamentally to bring to Jesus wasn't objects. It wasn't physical things that they could hand to Jesus or to his parents. It was something deeper, right? I think in our familiarity with the story, we can miss something very significant. We may have missed it even when I read verse 2 a moment ago. But look at the end of verse 2. These wise men, their own words, they say when they're coming to Jerusalem, it says, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Right? They didn't say we have come to give him our treasures. The way they summarized what they came to do was to give him worship. Uh, that's what they made this long journey to do. They don't even mention those other gifts yet, right? Those don't even get mentioned down till verse 11. They came to worship, and that's exactly what they do. Jump, down, jump your eyes down to verse 11, if you're able to, on your device or in your Bible. Uh, verse 11, I'm going to read that in a second. What happens in between the verses I've already read and this one, they have this really must have been to them kind of a bizarre encounter with the political king of the area, King Herod. And King Herod had uh, had figured out with the scribes and people, he had figured out what town the Messiah was to be born in and that it was Bethlehem, which wasn't far away. And so like he sends these wise men to go find this king and tell them, oh, I want to worship him too, wink, wink, uh, and sends them to Bethlehem. But then also Matthew records for us, and I don't know how in the world this happened, but that the star they had seen starts to direct them even more specifically, and not just in general to the area, but even to the very house where Jesus and his family are. And Jesus probably by this time, we don't know, but it's probably more like toddler age than newborn age. We don't know exactly. Uh, But the star leads them to this house, uh, this specific house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are. And then listen to verse 11, what Matthew says happens when they finally arrive at this house and they see the one that they have been waiting to see. Verse 11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So worship came first, gifts came second. Right? They didn't come just to give him objects. They came to give him worship. And then the objects that they gave to him and to his family were signs of worship. They flowed from the worship uh, that they wanted to give to this king, right? And I, I find this fascinating. If you can just picture in your mind's eye this scene. These are, are multiple men, probably with an entourage of people who have traveled far, like we often sing of at Christmas. They're wealthy men, tired men. They come into this house. These guys have seen glorious things in their life and contemplated glorious things. They come into this house where there's maybe this one-year-old boy and his teenage mom, and Joseph is around. We don't know where he is in the, the scene exactly, but they see this young, young boy and his mom, and they fall down 
like at his feet and worship him. That is a wild scene to imagine, right? When we meet a newborn, that's not what we do. We may say, oh, how cute or how wonderful or congratulations. They fall down and worship him, right? They, they, they fall at his feet and give worship to him. And it's fascinating to me because you could imagine when somebody was coming to a king, someone who they think is king or about to become king, you could imagine them bringing things to him or to his people for various reasons, maybe to try to bribe them, right? Like to, to like get their favor later down or if you, if you need them to do something for you, you could be trying to bribe them with gifts. You could be trying to impress them or impress other people like, look what I can give to this person. But they're doing it in the privacy of a house in little Bethlehem, right? You could be giving gifts to try to appease a king. If you maybe think you've offended them and you don't want to, to have a whirlwind of consequence come to you, you could give them gifts for that reason, but there's not a hint of that in these men. This is a, he's like probably one year old, right? There's no, they're no, he's no threat to them. They've not done wrong to him. There's no sense of trying to appease him or bribe him, impress him. He's not going to know in his one-year-old mind what gold is or how valuable it is. But they know just by nature of who he is that he deserves worship. Uh, and so they come and they fall down before him. Right? And what I wanted you to see from this story, the main point I would want you to see this morning from this text, I would summarize this way in thinking about giving gifts to Christ, is that Jesus doesn't need, I don't want to offend you unnecessarily, but Jesus doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't. Like Jesus doesn't need anything from you, but he deserves and desires your worship. He doesn't need anything from you, but he deserves your worship and he desires your worship. And that is good news for us. So what do I mean that Jesus deserves your worship? Now, these men came to worship him because they had seen the star and they at least knew something of him, that he's this special, special king. If they had reason to fall down and worship this one-year-old maybe boy... We have way, way, way more reason to fall down and worship him, to, to worship that same person, right? They saw the star, knew he was a unique ruler. What do we know about him in all the years that have ensued since? I'll tell you if you don't know these things. We know of this child. I don't know that they even for sure knew this. We know that he is divine, that he is God in the flesh, right? Would they maybe infer that or heard that? Um, but we know that for sure. That's been demonstrated again and again. This wasn't just some special human. This is God becoming a human. God the Son who had existed eternally. So we know that he is divine. That alone is reason to worship him, uh, to fall down and praise him and ascribe worth to him. But he had a whole life ahead of him when the wise men came to him. He had maybe lived a year by that point in time. We know that he has lived, lived on this planet multiple decades of purity and perfection, right? That deserves worship. To, to come before a person who, unlike all of us, was sinless, like who lived in perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father, that is reason to worship him. But more than just knowing how he lived, we know how Jesus died. And that just adds reason for us to, to worship him and fall down before him. Because some people try to say Jesus just died a criminal's death uh, when he went on the cross. But it was far more than that. When Jesus died, he was taking on the sin of people like you and me. 
He was letting it be counted to himself and giving himself to God the Father as a sacrifice for us on our behalf, taking the judgment that should have fallen on us so that we might be forgiven. That adds reason to worship him, uh, to fall down and worship for how, not just how he lived, but how he died as a substitute for us. But more than that, another reason that we have to worship and fall down before him and worship is we know not just how he lived and how he died, we know how he was resurrected, right? That God the Father on the third day on a Sunday morning, that's why we're together this morning, even though it's Christmas, on a Sunday morning, the third day after he died, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead never to die again. And that was way more impressive than him leaving the womb of Mary was him leaving that tomb. Because he was raised never to die again under no threat of sickness or death or anything. He had conquered death. He had been given reward by God the Father. And it's further evidence to us, worship him. Like he deserves your worship. The Sunday morning that he was raised from the dead, you keep reading in the Gospels, people started falling at his feet again. Like the Marys, when they go to the tomb, Jesus, after they're starting to leave, he meets them. And Matthew says that they fall down at his feet in worship because they know something unique has happened in him being raised from the dead. But even more than that, more reason to worship Jesus. We know by the end of Matthew and then especially into the book of Acts that Jesus himself said as a resurrected man that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Meaning, by Jesus' own testimony, he is now, even presently, in charge of everything and everyone. He is the king, not just of the Jews, he is the king of the universe. He is the king of the world. And he is now, even now, ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. There's reason upon reason upon reason upon reason to worship this Jesus. And so that is what I mean when I say he doesn't need anything from you. Like God has already made him ruler of all things. He created all things. He is being worshiped right now by throngs and throngs of angels and glorified human beings. He does not need anything from you or from me. He, he doesn't. He, he rules over all things, but he does deserve your worship. He doesn't need it, but he deserves it. And I would say even more than that, he desires it. It's not just that he, cold, he does command us to worship him. And he would command you today, worship me. But he doesn't just do it in some cold way, like I deserve this, like fall down and worship me. He desires, he invites you to come to him and worship, to, to turn from your sin and to fall down and worship before him. And this is good news for us because all of us have failed to worship him, Right? None of us enter into this world worshiping him. None of us enter into the world giving him what he deserves. We worship all sorts of other things and other people. If you don't believe that, just watch how we open gifts today. <laughs> that may give you a glimpse into things that we worship and give so much value to other than him himself. We have failed to worship him rightly. But as we've seen throughout this morning, God sent Jesus into this world to redeem people like us to redeem people who have worshiped other gods, who have run away from Jesus rather than to him. He sent Jesus into the world to save us and reconcile us to himself. He didn't just leave us far away. He didn't just punish us as false worshipers, but he, he died and was raised for us so that we might be forgiven of our false worship and to return to him in worship. And if you start giving worship to Jesus, 
I, I would strongly, strongly urge you to make sure your worship toward him this morning and the rest of your life isn't one of obligation. It's not just done out of cold obligation, and it's certainly not done out of like bribery or deal striking with God. Like Jesus doesn't operate on those terms. It's not like you can say, well, I'll worship you if you'll do this for me. That is not how Jesus operates. He deserves worship. He desires it. But the way, the only way that we can come and write worship to Jesus is to first recognize the gift that he is to us. Not that we have something wonderful we can bring to him, but know that he is our gift to us and come to him with empty hands saying, I've got nothing but my sin here, Jesus. Please forgive me. And if we come with that posture, he is glad and eager and willing to forgive us and grant us eternal life right? And so this morning I would challenge and urge all of us, whether we're four years old or 84, make sure that you are worshiping Christ. Uh, And it doesn't have to take a certain form or certain words. I'm not going to put a prayer into your mouth, but the core of what God calls us to in response to him sending Jesus is that we would turn from our false worship and we would give worship to Jesus, that we would honor him, recognize him for who he is. And it's only when we do that, that then, like the wise men, then we can open up our treasures and give to Christ in a way that actually pleases him. If we try to come to him without worshipful hearts and just, here's my money here's my time here I'll do this I'll do that I'll do all these good deeds for you and we're not doing it from a posture of worship Jesus is not pleased with that like Jesus is not like oh thank you I so needed your thousand dollars I so needed that gift Jesus does not need anything from us and the only way that we can bring him things that bring pleasure to him is if we come in repentance and faith and worship And when we recognize the gift he is to us, then we can bring gifts to him that are proper and that are acceptable, that are pleasing in his sight. I would say it this way. If if Christ is not a treasure to you, then your treasures that you seek to bring to him mean nothing, right? If he is not first a treasure that's been opened to you, then you opening your treasures to him means nothing. But when you recognize the treasure that he is, when you recognize the gift that he is to you, then you can gladly, freely, joyfully open the treasures God has given to you and give them back in return. That is what brings pleasure to Christ because we should never just think of the opening of our wallets, generosity as the opening of our wallets, but as an expression of our worship. I'm so seeing Jesus as valuable that I'm willing to hold loosely what God has given to me, the other gifts that he's given to me. So in closing, I would just ask again, what do we give the person who has it all? What do we give to Christ that could possibly be pleasing to him? He's the creator of all things, right? He is the savior of the nations. He is the king of the universe. What do we give to him? What do we bring to him? I wanted to end with the lyrics of a poem. It's been turned into song in different formats, but a poem by Christina Rossetti called In the Bleak Midwinter. It's a wonderful poem, but at the end of it, she says this. She says, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. And what she was trying to express is that 
Jesus doesn't so much care about you bringing your things to him. You don't have to be like the little drummer boy, like my rumpa-pum-pum I'm bringing to you. Like what you bring to Jesus is your worship. And it's something you don't have to save up for that, right? You don't have to save up all year to give Jesus your worship. We do worship as human beings all the time. What we need to do is aim our worship, make sure that our our worship, what we value, who we value the most is Jesus Christ, this one who entered the world as a baby but who's now been glorified as the resurrected Savior of the nations. And so may we give to him our hearts. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward.